Welcome back to another episode of Unwise Girls. I'm your host, Jacqueline. And I'm your other host, Jane. Welcome to the show today, Janie. How you doing? Hello. I'm fine. I'm very warm. Oh, someone's someone's a little baby. You can't handle some heat. It's true. I am indeed very baby and cannot handle any kind of heat. And you're so valid for it. Thank you. Speaking of the heat, uh, today we've got some some fire chapters. Oof. Is that a good segue? Uh, yeah, I feel like I feel like saying that is going to make us uh, hit with the kids. Oh, that's good. I I've been I've been I've been trying to work on smoother segues recently. I see. So um, if you notice that I'm like really good at them all of a sudden, make sure to send your compliments to unwisegirlspod@gmail.com <laughs> or in our Discord server unwisegirls. Find it on our Twitter, uh, twitter.com/slash/unwisegirls. <laughs> Oh shit, I just realized. Uh-huh. Uh, as you were saying that, um, I recently uh, guested on a uh, like the first episode of a new podcast called Undead Rabbits. Shouts to Undead Rabbits, yeah. who was on our podcast. Yeah, they came on to uh, trash the terrible Lightning Thief movie with us. Uh, but I was listening back to it when it got posted to YouTube uh, at youtube.com slash undeadrabbits. Um, and I fucked up our uh, plugs at the end. I said that we are at Unwise Girls Pod on Twitter. You always do this. <laughs> this is not uh, my fault. This is the fault of whoever took Unwise Girls as a as a Gmail address. You're right. You're right. Anyway, I'll need to post a comment to correct that. <laughs> uh, well, shout out to them, everyone. Go listen to the funny podcast. Yeah. If you want to hear more of Jane's lovely voice. But I'm sorry, I completely derailed your segue. No, it's good. Like I said, <laughs> when it comes to derailing, I can't be stopped. Just like these chapters, which kept going. No, they didn't. The book ended. Fucking. <laughs> um, <laughs> okay, so well, they were good. They were good. Good chapters. They were good. Good chapters. <laughs> okay, let's. <laughs> Let's get back on track. We're, in, in case you couldn't tell, we're a Percy Jackson podcast. It's true. And we're today we're reading the last three chapters of the of the Battle of the Labyrinth. Jane, how about you take us to summaries? No, no, you're not tricking me like this again. You don't have them. I have evidence in Discord DMs that that it was your turn to do them this week. Hmm. It looks like I do have some summaries. Oh, thank goodness. How about I read those? Hooray, you should do that. Chapter 18. Grover causes a stampede. When the gang returns topside to New York, they're greeted by Blackjack and friends. Before they leave Rachel behind to go to camp, she reveals her guilt about her dad, a rich land developer, someone actively destroying the wilds. Percy says he's not going to judge her, and they promise to hang out again. Back with the Pegasi, Annabeth manages to convince Nico to come with them, but he says he won't stay. Back at camp, everyone is filled in, and the elder satyr Silenus doesn't believe that Pan is dead, but Chiron shuts that discussion down. It's time to prepare for war. Everybody at camp is armored and preparing armaments, but Chiron knows it isn't enough. He knows that to win this war, they need more forces, more resources, and more trust. The battle is horrible. Waves and waves of monsters emerge from the labyrinth. Nico summons a dozen military corpses to serve him. Percy calls on the water within himself to save Juniper's tree from burning, and many campers get hurt or worse. The tides get rougher as Compe arrives. Percy and Annabeth almost get themselves killed trying to defeat her, until Mrs. O'Leary, Daedalus, and even Briaries make an entrance, and the hundred-handed one annihilates her. Chiron is endangered as well, his legs broken, but Grover emits a terrible sound of pure fear that drives the monsters back into the labyrinth. As everyone regroups, Daedalus tells them he's going to end his own life to destroy the labyrinth, finally releasing himself to death, where he can finally see and apologize to Icarus and Perdix. Nico puts him to rest, and as the labyrinth collapses and the country shakes, Percy comforts Mrs. O'Leary. Chapter 19. The Council Gets Cloven. The 
The camp gathers to bury the dead. Counted among them, Lee Fletcher of Hollow Cabin and Castor, son of Dionysus. The next day, after treating the wounded and repairing the forest, the Council of Cloven Elders gathers once more. The children describe seeing Pan's death, and Juniper insists that Grover had used Pan's power of panic to drive back the forces. But this explanation doesn't satisfy the elder Silenus. But the call for a vote to exile Grover is interrupted by Dionysus, who announced that the minor gods have indeed turned to Cronus aside. His son is dead, and he's in no mood for these trivialities, so with his vote, he, the council ties and is dissolved leaving Grover to give Pan's final words to the satyrs who do not leave. That afternoon, Tyson draws Briarys a map to the forges and they say goodbye. After dinner, Percy finds Nico in the woods, having just finished communing with Bianca, and Nico says he won't stay. There is, metaphorically and also literally, no place for him here, so he'll find the answers to any lingering questions on his own. Nico apologizes too, and Percy gives him the mythomagic Hades figure he thrown away last year, which he accepts. Then, Nico leaves. Dionysus appears behind Percy then and walks with him back to the campfire. On their way, in his own funny little Dionysus manner, he lets Percy know that he's proud. Percy also realizes that Dionysus cured Chris Rodriguez's labyrinth madness, and as the god leaves him with some words about how a small kindness has great power, Percy watches Clarice and Chris holding hands and singing songs, and he smiles. Chapter 20 my birthday party takes a dark turn. The rest of camp is strangely normal. On the last day, though, when Annabeth sees Percy off, things come to a head between them because Annabeth's still all fucked up about Luke, shutting down whenever the topic comes up. Percy asks her about what the last line of the prophecy was, running through every line he knows and sussing out what they all ended up meaning until the pressure finally gets to her and she says it right out. And lose a love to worse than death. Something she kept hidden, and that kept her distressed the whole quest, because she had no idea if it was referring to Luke or Percy. And when it became obvious it was about Luke, uh, she felt that he was that was even more reason to keep it all in. She begins to apologize, but is interrupted by the glowing arrival of Hera, who congratulates them on a successful quest. She led them every step of the way in secret, making sure everything happened smoothly, and her family was kept perfect, and every loss was more than acceptable. She asks for a sacrifice as thanks, but Annabeth rebukes her, and the goddess promises as she disappears that Annabeth will regret insulting her. Annabeth tells Percy to take care, and Percy watches her leave while just wishing you could tell her that despite all the complications, he doesn't want them to be distant anymore. Two days later, at Percy's 15th birthday party, Paul Blofus, who has been misted into allowing Percy back into the good school, Tells Percy he's planning on proposing to Sally, and Percy thinks it's a great idea. When Percy's about to blow out the candles in his cake, the doorbell rings, and Poseidon shows up. I said op. Why did I say op? What's wrong with me? <laughs> when Percy's about to blow out the candles in his cake, the doorbell rings, and Percy's dad shows up. Tyson's happy to see him. Percy and Sally are surprised, and Paul is confused, but his heart's in the right place. Privately, he and Percy speak about everything, and though Poseidon can't stay for long while the sea is all at war with itself with the minor gods faffing about and stuff, he gives Percy a sand dollar and tells him to spend it when the time comes. Percy also asks about Antaeus, and Poseidon reassures him that the giant's actions, though done in the sea god's name, reflect only on the one doing them, and that Percy is his actual favorite son. He leaves, turning into an ocean mist, but leaves Percy with a warning. Typhon will escape in the next year and head straight for Olympus, and it will be a disaster unlike anything Percy has faced. After Tyson knocks Percy out of the Monopoly game, Percy goes to his room and finds in his shirt pocket the clipping of Moonlace Calypso gave to him. He steps outside to plant it in his mother's planter, trying to fulfill Calypso's final wish to him, and from the sprig, a baby Moonlace grows. In the fire escape next to him, Nico appears, about an inch taller, with shaggy hair and a slightly cleaner goth aesthetic. And he lets Percy know Daedalus was punished, sentenced by Hades directly to building infrastructure in Asphodel for eternity, with weekends off to visit his son in Perdix. That's not what he came to talk about, though. He's found out the only way Percy could defeat Luke. It's also obvious that he's hungry and lonely. Percy invites him inside for blue birthday cake, ice cream, company, 
and a long conversation. So, what did you think of the chapters this week? These were really great. This was a great finale. Oh, absolutely. What did you, do you got any big thoughts that you want to get into right off the top of your head? Yeah, I mean, they were just, it was just a really good ending. Uh, everything was really satisfyingly wrapped up. Some of the plot threads that I was like not as sure about still get tied up in a nice way. Uh, I don't know. Everything's good and I'm preparing for a disastrous and horrifying next book. <laughs> yeah, it seems like the stage is set for it to be like even worse than this. Worse as in like in terms of the tone, not in terms of the quality. Quality's been good. Yeah, it's pretty consistently been quality for at least for like the last three fourths of the book, I think. Definitely. Yeah. We also, um, just as like a quick note at the top, while we're talking about payoffs, uh, we actually missed one from last week that we got. Really? Yeah, um, we speculated like close to the start of the book about Chris Rodriguez pointing at Percy and screaming, ah, the son of Poseidon, he's horrible. Oh, right, right, right. Yeah, and I think in retrospect, that that must have been about Antaeus. Yeah, I, 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 I think that's... Um... It's, it's just good foreshadowing. There's plenty of good foreshadowing in this book. Yeah. Well, well let's start with, I guess, that, that on that same note, how do you feel about the, uh, the, the conclusion to, you know, Chris and Clarice's story and, I guess, the thing with Dionysus? Um, I don't know. I mean, in terms of Chris and Clarice, I mean, Chris hasn't really been a character, so I'm not that invested in him, really. But it was a nice moment for both Clarice and Mr. D, I think. No, yeah, I mean, I'm we've we've known Chris for a book, so I'm not like I'm obviously not like, oh, what do you think of Chris's super compelling character story? <laughs> I'm more so just saying like that was one of the plot threads, so let's It certainly was. Yeah, I I enjoyed it. I think it did a lot for I don't know, a lot of characters. Mr. D Mr. D uh he he's like the master of oh Dionysus comes in you think he's an asshole but he does something really cool and yeah that's just that just seems to be what he does now and I'm happy with that frankly oh definitely I can't complain about more Dionysus epic moments exactly I'd actually like to um make a bit of a throwback here go ahead so in one of our early episodes um I decided to make like my big thesis statement that uh, Capture the Flag was just Quidditch but better. Right. And I'd like to circle back to the to that and say um, the Battle of the Labyrinth is like, what if the Battle of Hogwarts was good? Oh my god. <laughs> uh, I mean, I, I kind of get what you're saying, but can you like go into a little bit more detail, I guess? So, yeah, I mean, broader overarching problems with Harry Potter aside... Like, the Battle of Hogwarts is basically just this giant soup of, like, everybody pairing up into weirdly gender-matched one-on-one pairs and fighting each other (laughs) across, like, a huge environment with no sense of space or where anything is. Right. While this is, like, it's, like, the stakes of the battle are clear. Each side has a very clear objective, which is just... Luke's side, get through the choke point, Camp Half-Blood, stop them from getting out of the choke point. So just, it's got much, much more clearly established stakes to build all the tension around. And I just think that makes it a much more compelling read and it makes all the action that takes place within it feel much more tense. Not only that, but if we're just comparing the two directly, there's part of, part of what's like, shitty about the battle of hogwarts is that it feels like just like 20 people it's not it doesn't feel like a war or like a battle mm-hmm. it just feels like kind of a scrap yeah oh, definitely this feels like a war like this feels like a major conflict which is weird because like a major like something that chiron points out is that they don't have that many campers but like so much is done with what they have and rick does so much with what he has that it feels like, for want of a better word, a much more epic confrontation. It does. I think some of the strengths is like 
on its own, not not comparatively, some of the strengths of this battle are that it doesn't go easy on you. It doesn't say like, well, luckily nobody died. It also doesn't go too hard on you, though. Mm-hmm. Some characters died, but it's not like we weren't here listing all, and more characters than were named died for sure. Oh, definitely. We also weren't here like listing off at like, oh, you know, uh, Clarice died bravely. You know, uh, you know, it was Lee Fletcher. It was Castor. It was it was Pollux. It was oh, Silena Beauregard. I know you said you weren't directly comparing, but this is just like a direct dunk on the Battle of Hogwarts, which does that exact thing. I mean, it's just poor. It's not necessarily poor writing, but if yeah, keeping it keeping it constrained in the way that it did helps a lot more. Yeah, definitely. This isn't the big fight, I assume. Well, no, Poseidon, like, straight up says at the end of the book, you know, full-scale war is coming, so that's not what this is. Even though it does, like, we get such a picture of this horrible, messy battle, it's hmm. it's gonna be worse. Uh-huh. You said, you said, you sound like you have some thoughts broiling around. Uh, I didn't actually. Okay, never mind then. No thoughts, head empty. It's true. I, that's, that's the name. That's why our podcast is named the way it is. Yeah, it's called No Thoughts Girls. <laughs> but, like, part of, part of it is that there's just so much going on, that it, but it's also not hard to keep track of. Because you basically get the idea there are waves of enemies coming in. Uh, you you basically know what all the major players are doing. Like mm-hmm. not at any given time. Like it's not like we're tracking them constantly, but we get a like a, a sense of what their roles are, and we get some satisfying like I don't know conflicts in there. Like we get to see the the campy the compe. Yeah, we got the final confrontation with that. Not, but it's also like a heroic moment for like, oh, Daedalus is back, Mrs. O'Leary, and then oh, it's Briaries too, and Briaries lands the final blow on her. I think that's very, very excellent. I did think that I was going to have a problem with the end of the battle, mm-hmm. because Grover just kind of like pulls a new power out of his ass, and they win the battle that way. But the fact that like stopping it from happening again has has like the extremely steep cost of Daedalus has to kill himself. Yes. Like I think that that prevents it from being a literal Deus Ex Machina. Because like all Grover really ended up doing was pushing them back. If Daedalus hadn't essentially collapsed the labyrinth on them. Yeah, they would have just come back. They would have just come back in like, you know, the next day or something. Or maybe just like in an hour. So there is that sense like, oh yeah, Grover's got this new power, which by the way, the panic thing is very funny. It's a bit weird and not in line with anything that we know about Pan from this series. I mean, I don't know if that's true. We don't we don't know a lot about Pan other than that he's like super venerated by satyrs. He's mostly just been presented as a hippie. I mean, kind of, but like... The, his big accomplishment was like screaming in fear and driving off not, not his big accomplishment but like in the war his big thing was that he screamed in fear and panic and drove all the monsters back I think that's appropriate for what we know of him I suppose that's true yeah not because I'm like oh he's a wimpy environmentalist but because <laughs> like I don't know it just seems like if he's a satyr god then like yeah we know a lot of satyrs that scream in fear funny comedy grover does certainly scream in fear while flying around blind hitting a snake woman with a stick very often it's every book he does that basically i also like um the way that like the deaths are handled mm-hmm. like because this book relatively i think has kind of pulled its punches compared compared to titan's curse where like two main characters bite it at the end Oh, yeah. Like, the only casualties are Castor and Lee. Who, who who we only know about because you made a really silly reference to Battlestar Galactica once, and also the other one we only know about because he's been mentioned a few times. 
Listen, I think Rick made a really silly reference to Battlestar Galactica and nothing will convince me otherwise. I, I can see it. I can see it. But I like that um, we didn't know Caster's name and that Percy like remarks on how you know he feels kind of bad that he never learned it. Instead of trying to like build a, an emotional connection to a character that we didn't know up until now, it emphasizes like how horrible and sudden death can be. And like the way that you kind of take people around you for granted up until something horrible happens to them. That was exactly my thought. A lot of this book, to me, on like, I guess, review and retrospect, a lot of it seems to be about how you need to like take action. You need to do things. You need to like try. You need to try to make things better. Yeah, I can definitely see that. And... It's it's a basic, I guess, core value to have for a book, but it's. I like how consistent it is. You just try again. Ba da 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 da. Okay. Um. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry. It's okay. Hey, there. You know, we're talking about all the payoffs we've gotten at the end of this book. Uh huh. There's one very notable exception. Unless it did happen, I'm about to show my whole ass by forgetting about it. Okay. Where was Annabeth's big choice? My thought is that Annabeth's big choice is still coming. Mm -hmm. Or that her big choice was like, whether or not she's going to, like how she's going to respond to Hera or something like that. But I, I, I think it's still coming. Yeah, no, I don't, I don't think it was the Hera thing. I think that... That wasn't a big, difficult choice. That was only ever going to go one way. Yeah, I think it's most likely long-term setup. Or I guess, like, can one book away be called long-term? It's it's pretty long-term. Yeah. Unless it, unless we're waiting on something that we're going to get in, like, Heroes of Olympus. That's, I guess it's possible, but who yeah. knows? <laughs> uh, the hair scene, c- talking about that, was maybe one of the more... We've talked a lot in this book about, like, who's the main antagonist of the Battle of the Labyrinth. Uh-huh. And, you know, we've put out some different options. Like, maybe it's Daedalus. No, that doesn't really fit. Maybe it's Minos. Yeah, he's not enough of a presence. Yeah. And so, like, I, I think other than Kronos, the biggest qualifier for book's big villain goes to Hera. I get the distinct impression that Hera played a much bigger role in this book in earlier drafts. You think so? Yeah, I feel like she shows up and has like one or two like plot critical scenes and otherwise is basically like a non-entity for the whole book. I don't know, this is completely unfounded, but I I feel like she at one point was supposed to be like this nefarious guiding hand on Annabeth's quest, maybe even like a parallel to Minos for Nico. I don't see that. Okay. The way I'm reading it, it seems like she's kind of already that for Percy's quest. Oh? Well, because that's explicitly what she did. Well, yeah. She paved their way. She uh, sent him to Calypso. Uh, it's, there's, she guided his arrow. It's all, and I mean, it is literally annabeth's quest in that respect because she's the one whose quest it is but if we're just talking about like character advent character quests and like the literary sense i guess but what i mean to say is that like i don't think she needed to show up more to be a presence hmm i don't know i feel like i feel like we should have gotten three scenes with her as opposed to two so i think what what makes it okay for me uh-huh. Is that there are a lot of scenes of Percy being like, not just Percy, but there are a lot of scenes that are like, somebody is guiding our way. Oh, somebody paid for our passage through, through you know, the the ranch. That's, um, yeah, that's Percy, true. Percy prays to the gods and a god, mysterious god who he assumes is either Artemis or Apollo, uh, lets Zero fly true. Um Hephaestus comes and is like, this is pretty fishy. It was probably my life, but, you know. And I think that all of that adds up to a, like, this is a quest that the gods are interfering in a lot, and it makes a lot of sense that it was just Hera. 
Yeah, that makes sense. Like, to be clear, I'm not, like, unhappy with what we got. I just wonder if there was, at some point, a bigger role for her in this book. I still really like this scene. Oh, no, totally. I just think... I'm trying to, like... I always try and, like, fit in, like, well, where would another scene go? Like, where... Like, and obviously the answer is, like, well, the book would be written differently. Well, yeah. But it's still, like, this... This is a pretty, like, fair sequence to book. And so it kind of makes me feel like, well, you know, like, I don't know if there would be a place for that necessarily once things get once things get going. You could maybe slot it into, like, the gap where Percy is on Calypso's island. But then we never leave Percy's perspective, so we probably wouldn't, you know, it'd be difficult to show that. Yeah. I wonder if... I wonder if Hera was the messenger. Oh, yeah. No, that would make a lot of sense, actually. Hmm. It, it could very well be. I, ima- I, c- I can imagine Hera, like, taunting her and being like, well, here's another hero for you to fall in love with. And yeah, basically. For you to lose. Like, because well, that's... Hera's, e- Hera's super evil. Oh, she's awful. I also love, like... I love this scene as, like, development for Annabeth. Because... All the way back in book one, she was, like, seriously warning Percy about, like, you know, not showing proper reverence to the Olympians. And she's now, like, headstrong enough, and I think maybe, like, disillusioned enough that she feels comfortable telling the Queen of the Gods to go fuck herself. It's great development, because, like, she's putting herself in danger in a way that Annabeth does a lot, actually, but that still symbolizes, like you said, like, a... a, a, a a type of growth that was important for her character. Yeah. And it also fits super nicely into like just the rest of her character arc in this book, which I think ultimately like works super well. Yeah. I, I definitely agree with that. I don't know. In a lot of respects, this was like Annabeth's story. Finally. <laughs> kind of. Yeah. I mean, I wouldn't have even objected to more of it, but like, I guess, what did you think of, our conclusions to everything we learned with Annabeth, basically. You know what? What's up? I couldn't actually tell you what Annabeth's arc was in this book. I'm not necessarily saying that there wasn't one. I'm just saying that I'm dumb and I might not have discerned it. Well, let's talk it out. Okay. Because we can say things like, oh, Annabeth had a good arc or whatever, but, you know, it's good to actually identify those things. Maybe challenge what we're thinking. Yeah. Um... Well, okay, so Annabeth, where did Annabeth start out in this book? She was, we first saw her when she was going to pick up Percy. Pissed off and jealous, mainly. I don't know. I Maybe it's not an arc. Maybe it's just, like, the story of her having to, I guess, like, be in, not a love triangle, but, like, having to deal with, like, these feelings of love that she has and like all the conflict that is going on in there and also like all of this happening during her first quest and that you know meaning a lot for her personally and everything happening with Daedalus like this is a very Annabeth book definitely yeah I'm not sure if I can point to a singular arc though maybe it's a case of like her arc isn't done yet because as we were talking about like her big decision moment hasn't been resolved yet and I think if you wanted to, like, put the conclusion to a character arc anywhere, it would be at the moment where they have to make a big decision. So I think it's possible that maybe this book was about, like, you know, setting up Annabeth with, like, all these terrible choices she's had to make, the stress of being put in a leadership position, the fact that she's risen to that stress and has to deal with, like, the costs of what happened, and that's going to maybe inform where she goes in the next book. I'd say so. If we're identifying an arc, Annabeth starts this book kind of off her feet because she's just like kind of rattled from everything going on Mm -hmm. and ends it even more confused. Maybe like this is like the low point for Annabeth's character, not insofar as like quality, but just like this is her personal low point. Yeah, it definitely feels that way. And I'm excited for how the last Olympian is going to handle, I guess, the up the upshot yeah what do you think about the ultimate revelation of what the last line of the prophecy was i want to talk about that that's part specifically 
Uh, I I thought that was really good. I'm glad that um, my theory that Annabeth was like using Tyson as a human shield has been like um, dismissed. Uh huh. I didn't want to be right about that. That was a horrifying theory. <laughs> I mean, it plays into what we were just talking about with like this being Annabeth's lowest point, with her being like so confused and racked with grief over this person who she should hate undergoing something so awful that she can't help but feel really bad about it yeah and you put that in conflict with like her growing relationship with percy and how they're getting closer but like she's had very few close relationships in that way before Mm -hmm. like maybe literally only luke before and you put those two in to like not opposition but like put them both in there in her funny little teenage head rattling around and it I don't know. It's it's a recipe, it's a recipe for disaster for sure. Well, it does kind of cause opposition and friction because it it retroactively justifies why Annabeth wasn't willing to tell Percy the last line of the prophecy. Like it's it's something that Percy was fretting over and really worried by and caused a lot of tension among like the group during the quest. And it turns out that it was mostly because Annabeth was freaking out about it from like a romantic angle. Which, to be fair, was justified. Percy does freak out when he finds out what the line was. Yeah, and to me it's not only the romantic angle, but also, like, Annabeth is a character who I think we've seen, like, not be super good at getting close to other people. Definitely, yeah. Like, she kind of has the same Percy trajectory of, like, maybe one new friend a book. (laughs) Even on that, she's lagging behind, I think what makes this so interesting is the idea that, like, if she reveals this before they go on the quest, she'll have to deal with the idea that either Percy or Luke will, something will happen to them. And, like, the idea that she doesn't want to say it at first because, like, maybe it's about Percy and Percy will assume it's about him, right? Percy will probably assume it's about him. Or... And if he does that, then he'll be worrying the whole time about, like, oh, something horrible is going to happen to me. But also, she's so focused on, like, preventing that, that basically everything becomes, like, like worse. Not in her mind, but, like, you can really see why she reacted the way she did, like, to Rachel Elizabeth there now. Okay, no, yeah, I, I get what you mean. Because, like... If, you know, Percy's head gets turned by this random new mortal girl, then that kind of cements for her that it's Luke. And I think possibly as as horrible as both prospects were, the idea that it's like Schrodinger's romantic interest getting fucked over horribly, you know, as long as it's left ambiguous, that means it's not happened yet. There's definitely that aspect, and I really enjoy that. And I don't know. I think it's a fun, multi-layered, like, character internal conflict. Yeah, absolutely. Oh, there we go. I I accused Annabeth of not having an arc in this book, and then we talked for, like, ten minutes about the intricacies of this one decision she made. Yeah, I, I... And I think it's a mistake to say that her arc begins here, because, obviously, like, she was a character in the first book. Mm-hmm. So... Because of that, I think the like this is one of the advantages and sometimes disadvantages. This is just one of the effects of having like a multi-book series, is that your characters will have multiple arcs, and some of those may appear, you know, one off in a book, and some of those may result from like really long-term aspects of the character that were set up at the beginning. You know what I mean? In book two or something. Yeah, absolutely. Like this has definitely been building for Annabeth since like the end of book one. Yeah, and and there are, like, worse ways that can go. Like, sometimes in these multi-book series, character arcs will just, like, always sputter or, like, always seem like they need to wrap up before the end. Yeah, sometimes sometimes a character will have, like, a really good arc in the first book that then, you know, needs to be walked back just to make the character, um, you know, usable in later books. And then they'll kind of go through the same arc again later, and it'll seem kind of weird that they're having to do this again. And we haven't really had to deal with that in the Percy Jackson and the Olympians. I mean, I was about to accuse Grover of doing that exact thing. 
<laughs> interesting okay um i grover is one of the characters we talked about in that regard like we we talked about him in like book two maybe but yeah i think it's le- it's less um walking anything back and more just like it's it's what i was saying about like one long continuous character line well i guess the reason i kind of don't view it as much that way in this case is because I mean the the explicit line that Annabeth uses here is looks like Grover has finally grown up mm. when he is yeah. like you know embracing his role as goat Jesus but that that was kind of the resolution of his arc in Lightning Thief is that he you know he looks older he's more confident and then he goes off with his searcher's license so it, it kind of feels like the same thing again not that that's it's not entirely just oh the same thing is happening again because we also talked about like you know maybe grover is regressing a bit back to pre-end of lightning thief because of the stress of what's going on and so he's maybe built himself back up to that as opposed to just redoing the character arc right and i'm sure there's something to be said about like a character arc isn't like a complete change of character yeah I mean, maybe in a sense it is, but like Grover is still the character he was in book one and he's now changing on a different scale. Like he's acting on a completely different scale than he was in that first book. Uh, Yeah, I suppose that's true. And because of that, I, I don't mind it very much. I don't think it's a bad thing. I I know you also don't think it's a bad thing, Mm -hmm. but I I do agree that it is like interesting. Grover is like one of the more repetitive characters in this series. I would like to talk about a character whose treatment I really like. Who's that? Uh, We haven't really like focused on it because it's been kind of just chugging along in the background. But I'm so happy with how much better the treatment of Tyson has gotten across this book. Yeah? I don't know, it's it's not even anything, like, huge. It's just that so much of the stuff that we took issue with in Sea of Monsters, like, some of the really gross descriptions of him. Gross as in, like, you know, from, like, weird and ableist. From that perspective, those, those have been dropped the fact that he clearly like has some kind of learning difficulty that's the butt of a joke like i don't think that's even come up in this book or it might have done but it wasn't a huge deal when it did no as opposed to like sea of monsters where that would be the point of entire scenes mhm like he's just he's treated as just like another one of the characters now and i really like that i'm glad that like that that's been turned around so well and without like without any fanfare really yeah so that makes me think about like there's a difference in how tyson has been viewed since like the first half of book one maybe even the first like three-fourths of book two is what i mean to say Mm -hmm. there's a difference in how tyson is portrayed in like the first maybe third or half maybe more of book two versus how he's been portrayed for the rest of the series and it's kind of only getting better and it makes me think about like how does percy being the perspective character characterize people in that way oh okay because percy has an arc in that book about like learning to kind of respect tyson and also like care about him that's very true yeah and i don't think it really excuses uh, like much of the like kind of weird ableist framing around him but I think what it does do is like offer maybe a perspective into like well Percy is who we view the entire world through the lens of and that kind of does affect things like that kind of does affect how we see people how we view events because we're all we're seeing it through Percy's eyes and processing it through his processing of it, basically. Yeah, I can definitely see that. Like, from that perspective, it does make sense that initially Percy's focus would be on, like, the more superficial, like, physical aspects of Tyson. Mm -hmm. And then as the series goes on and he, like, 
grows to respect him more and more, he realizes, oh, it was kind of shitty of me to judge him over those things. Yeah. Like, I think one of my favorite scenes in this book, and it, like, just, like, favorite sentences in this book was, like, oh, Tyson's just, like, kicking ass at Monopoly. Well, yeah, exactly. He sucks at charades, but, like, he just, like, wipes the floor with Percy and Monopoly, which, one, is very funny because why are they playing Monopoly at a birthday party? That sucks so bad. <laughs> uh, but, like, I don't know. Number two, it's just, like, a nice little moment for Tyson. Well, yeah, because it, I mean, it makes sense. Like, Tyson's brain is clearly, like, geared towards engineering mm-hmm. and kind of uh, mathematics and problem solving. Yeah. So it definitely makes sense that he would be really good at board games like that. Right. And I feel like if if that scene was in, like, Sea of Monsters, it would be like, oh, Tyson doesn't know how to play the game, and he accidentally crushed one of the pieces in his hands and cried because he thought he'd killed a tiny metal dog. Uh-huh. Whereas now it's like, no, it, it makes sense for him to be good at this, so he's good at this. And then I'm like, you say that, and I'm like, well, there's some there's some weird eugenic stuff in Percy Jackson a little bit. Um, oh, oh wait, okay. The idea that, like, people have certain, like, traits that, like, they're inherently geared towards or anything like, like things like that, like, there is definitely some of that. I don't, I wonder if that's maybe, like, an unfortunate side effect of, like, the core idea of the series being, like, you know, portraying kids with certain kinds of disabilities as actually cool and powerful. Yeah, yeah, I can see that for sure. I guess what I'm thinking about is, like, oh, all the Cyclopes are, like, naturally good at forging or whatever, you know? Yeah, no, I, I, can, I can see that. Like, I, I also, there's, there's like, there's nuance there a little bit. And this is also just a problem in, like, all fantasy media, pretty much. Not all of it, but, like, most of it. Yeah, definitely. Like, if you've, if you've got a fantasy novel with different races, chances are you are going to brush up against this problem. Yeah, especially because, the, like... Uh, we can't go into this. This is like too maybe too much, but like there's there's a lot to it, obviously. Um, we haven't talked about the birthday party much yet. We should talk about the birthday party. This is a good time too, because the birthday party is really good. It's a really good scene. Uh, I actually gasped when it turned out that Poseidon had shown up. Yeah, same. Firstly, I really enjoy the interaction between Percy and Pablofus. Like, yeah, I'm glad it's not one of those scenes that's like, I want to ask you your permission to marry your mother or whatever, because that's weird. Yeah, fuck that. But also, it's like a nice little like, well, hey, I'm I'm letting you know that I want to propose to your mom. I want your I want to get your feelings on that. It lets you know that like, Paul is like a kind of a nice guy, I guess. Yeah, it's like. It walks that line between, like, it's not the weird asking permission thing, but it also acknowledges, hey, this will have, like, an impact on your life, and you should get a say in it. Totally. Like, hmm. Because, like, the thing is, I think in any, like, children's media, there's a thing where if there's, like, oh, the parent is, like, like dating a new person, there's always, like, or there's often that thought of like, oh, this person is probably going to turn out to be like a villain in disguise or something. Which, to be fair, is what happened to me IRL, but that's a story for another time. It's a story for the bonus show or the <laughs> private show, maybe. Um, what was the private show? Is that is that just us? Is that the podcast that we do for ourselves? <laughs> I think that's just when we're on call talking about like stuff we're watching. I think that's probably true. And because of that, like, making it clear that Paul is just, like, kind of an awkward but, like, well-meaning guy, I enjoy that. I I would like to push back a bit on one of your characterizations of uh, Paul Blofus from the summaries. Uh, sure, sure. Uh, which is where you said, oh, you know, when Poseidon shows up, he's a bit confused, but his heart is in the right place. Uh-huh. I don't think that's true. 
Oh, what I do you think mean? it's very clear that he is worried about Poseidon banging Sally. <laughs> okay. <No>. Well, <laughs> well, who wouldn't be? He's Poseidon. He's a it's... JoJo character. <laughs> I, I'm so mad. You're mad. Poseidon You're mad at not... this? No, no. Th- this is a slightly separate thing. Okay. But Poseidon is not wearing a women want me, fish fear me hat. <laughs> if it had been like 15 years later, when this book was written, <laughs> he would have been. Unfortunately, that's not the timeline. The- Unfortunately, that's not the timeline we live in, is it? Unfortunately. I mean, there's still books in that universe being released, so maybe we will get the fabled Poseidon wearing that hat at some point. I don't think there are. I I think the series already finished. Oh, really? Yeah, I'm pretty sure all the Camp, the Camp Half-Blood Chronicles books are over. Uh. It's sad but true. I'm pretty sure it ended with the Trials of Apollo. Right, I see. Um, yeah, I, I like, I get what you're saying. I think it's, I don't, I'm just so charmed by Poseidon. <laughs> it's really good, and I think it's also, like, a testament to how well the rules of this world have been established and followed. Mm-hmm. That, like, you know, we both freaked out when Poseidon showed up to this. Because we have like such a good idea of how the gods work and what they do and don't do that him you know breaking tradition like this and showing up to uh, percy's birthday party is like a big deal by itself right right and like it continues the thing from the very first book where we talked about how poseidon is kind of like he hasn't really been in percy's life up to this point and he's kind of that like distant dad figure who is like very like you know carefully and also sometimes not carefully enough like trying to like reconcile with Percy. Yeah. And this is another great scene in that like view because like oh well this is you know my mom's boyfriend and also this is my biological dad and he's showing <laughs> up and he's never been to a birthday party of mine before. It's it's very like I guess not stereotypical but it's a very like archetypal scene yeah i can definitely see that and he's just so dang charming he is he's he's very charming he's very charismatic he's like the part where where paul introduces himself and he's like your name's blowfish and paul's (laughs) like oh no blowfish and he's like oh that sucks i love blowfish like that's just so (laughs) that's so nice he's a freaky fish guy he loves fish it's great Oh, and he hugs Tyson, Percy, and... Oh. Man, Tyson gets fucking shafted in this scene. How so- Oh, just because, like, he doesn't get a private moment with Poseidon? He doesn't get a private moment with Poseidon, and Poseidon says that Percy is his favorite son. <laughs> <laughs> like, what the fuck? Oh. Tyson is right next door. That's really funny. I hadn't thought of that. He also <laughs> has super hearing, doesn't he? Oh, God, yeah, he does. <laughs> Oh, Poseidon, what is wrong with you? Terrible dad, I'm telling you. He, I mean, like we said, he's doing like a, he's trying his best, but he, I mean, he's not really, he's, he's trying, but he's not always trying the best way he could. That's true. I think that like, oh, you're my favorite son is like a very easy thing to say and it can be reassuring, but also is like, it kind of shows the kind of character that he is. Oh. Well, you know what I mean? Like, Poseidon has a lot of kids. And, like, to be like, well, Percy, you're my favorite son, so don't worry. You know, it's like, that. it's very much that kind of, like, well, it feels like you're just, like, I don't know. Maybe, yeah, maybe Tyson isn't freaking out because, like, when he was working in the forges, Poseidon told him the same thing. <laughs> and so he's like, oh, yeah, he's just lying to Percy to make him feel better. That, I would love that. Well, because... <laughs> Tyson has probably had more interaction with Poseidon than uh, that's very possible, Percy has. Yeah. Like, I, I don't know if that's true, but I could easily see it being true because he works in Poseidon's forges. Mm-hmm. And and we know that he has interacted with Tyson sometimes. I think Tyson mentioned that. So I think like there is that implication that like, they have their own kind of relationship. And you know he and Percy, they have their own kind of relationship. It's kind of 
kept distinct in that way. Yeah, definitely. Sorry, just to, just to round out Poseidon being a dick. Uh huh. Just to use the door, man. You don't you don't like that he disappeared in a cloud of ocean mist. Well, he that's fine, but then Percy having to explain and make and sound like a madman while he says, "Oh yeah, my dad just kind of climbed out the window and tumbled down a fire escape to get out instead of <laughs> using the door in the elevator like a normal person." He's he's a busy guy. <laughs> if I could escape from places with just like an at in like the form of an ocean breeze, I would be doing that constantly. Actually, you know what? That's that's so true and understandable. Poseidon is the most valid god. <laughs> god, he's like Paul's. Like I used to teach ancient history, and Poseidon's like that's me. Ancient history. That's so sharp. I don't know. This guy. This guy rules. I like him. Do you think Paul Blowfist is meant to be like? And this isn't even meant in a particularly critical way, but, like, maybe Rick Riordan's author surrogate character. Maybe a little bit. I mean, because I could see that insofar as, like, he's a he's a kind of a history teacher who is a, you know, kind of normal guy who's getting into this world. And um, I think... It's like, he's, he's doing his best to understand, and but, you know, kind of fucks up sometimes, but he's doing his best. He's dating Percy's mani- manic pixie dream mom. <laughs> it's all it's all good. Sometimes you like subconsciously put yourself in a book. I could see that being this. Yeah, no, I like again, I don't mean that as a criticism. I there are some of my favorite characters are like obvious author surrogates. No, not at all. I mean, I at most it is just funny. Definitely, yeah. We haven't really talked about Nico in these chapters. Nico is like the maybe I don't know the MVP I'm not sure but like he's a really I like I like Nico I like what what's going on with Nico Nico is going through some shit he's going through it he okay so I said I think last episode that if this book didn't end with Percy planting that freaking you know planting that <laughs> garden I would throw hands however I, I think this was maybe the best possible ending. Like like with the Quintus thing, we were worried. We, we put in a request for it to be the good version, and we absolutely got the good version. We got the good version and then like the better version too. So we start off in these chapters with Nico. Well, first of all, we start with him kind of on his like ghost king shit. Like just like summoning various military corpses from the ground and like fighting for him that rules and we also find out that he's the ghost king from the prophecy which i didn't like i didn't twig immediately yeah no me neither even though i think he literally says that so we probably should have figured that out probably but you know check the title of our podcast people you know <laughs> you know what you're here for the the two highlight spots for nico here though are him talking with percy after dinner in chapter 19 and him showing up again a few months later in chapter 20 um what are your nico thoughts uh my nico thoughts are i'm glad that he is finally being given food and probably also a hug he seems to be in desperate need of both of those things and has con- he's like convinced himself that he needs to like be alone among dead people and someone needs to disabuse him of that notion very quickly <laughs> Like, there's an extent to which him being like, well, there's no place for me here at Camp Half-Blood. Literally, you did not build a cabin to my father. <laughs> like, because that's very much like, it's the same thing we saw with, uh, what's the fucking Nakamura? Chris Nakamura, was that it? No, you're thinking of Chris Rodriguez. No, uh, Ethan, Ethan. That was it. Yeah, no, it's the same thing with Ethan, where like, Ethan's mom is a minor god and like not an Olympian. Like everyone, but every demigod who's a kid of a non Olympian is kind of shafted into like. You live in Hermes Cabin. Yeah. That can be really disenchanting, I imagine. Well, yeah, especially when Percy and Tyson have got an entire cabin to themselves, the selfish gits. Yeah. It does feel like. I don't know. 
like it, it's kind of the opposite of, the per- of Percy's problem, right? Because he starts off in book one, like, well, I have this big cabin, but I'm extremely lonely. There's nobody else here who can like relate to me in that way. Mm-hmm. And like all the other campers have. And this is kind of the same problem, but in like a very opposite way, because there does exist that like structural support for Percy, um, at least inside of Camp Half-Blood. But there isn't for these kids, and they still have to deal with the loneliness. Yeah, you can definitely see why, like, Ethan Nakamura would, like, turn coat. For sure. And I guess I'm, like, really glad with where Nico's character has gone. Because, well, I don't know if I would want, like, multiple books of Nico, like, out on his own, like just like dying in the woods, which seems to be kind of what he's been doing. (laughs) And also just because it's nice to see like a character's not fall, but a character's like disillusionment and then like kind of reconciliation. Yeah, definitely. It also helps this really great characterization for Percy that like he never gives up on Nico. And finally at the end of this book that pays off. Like, there are two separate things here. Like, there's there's one, there's the parallel between at the end of last book, Nico threw away his, his figurine, and at the end of this book, Percy gave it back to him, and Nico accepted it. Mm-hmm. And then there's Percy welcoming him into his home. Yeah, it's it's really nice. Nico deserves nice things. He does. You know there's no way he didn't walk into that house and Sally just, like, gave him a big ol' hug. Oh, Absolutely. Like, even without the context, he looks fucked up enough that he would just get a hug. Yeah. Uh, he's goth now. It's it's very good. I don't know. I'm excited for where Nico's going. He seems more, like, in tune with himself. He seems, like, less, I don't know, constantly at war with his own in- internal struggles. And he's just like, yeah, this is what's happening in Hades. My dad did this thing. Uh, and I know how to defeat Kronos. Also that, yeah. I'm also, I just, I, I love the, the, the resolution that Daedalus has gotten. It's like, you know, he's he's put to work in a useful way. It's still kind of a punishment, but it takes into account that he, you know, seems to have changed quite a bit. It also pays off the very funny joke from the first book, where Hades is absolutely losing his shit over the congestion problems in Asphodel. So it's nice that we finally, like, circle back around to that. Well, it's eternal slavery, but it's eternal slavery that he likes. So it's okay. <laughs> Listen, apparently your options in the Percy Jackson world are eternal suffering, eternal standing in a field, or paradise. And the eternal slavery is at least better than the eternal suffering. Probably true. If I was just like, I don't know, if I was just like building roads in the afterlife forever, I don't think that'd make me too mad, you know? Well, he's basically just playing fucking city skylines forever. I'm sure he's fine. Uh, he really is Annabeth's brother, huh? <laughs> uh, yeah. I think that's pretty much everything. What were our thoughts? Do you want to, like, lightning round it, or do you want to go to our thoughts on, like, the book as a whole? I think I've gotten everything out of my system that I wanted to talk about, so I'm ready to move on to the book as a whole, if you are. Jane, give me your your verdict. Uh... This book has died. You are a judge of the dead. You are mine off. <laughs> Tell me... What your verdict is. I, I would like Eternal Fondue. Anyway. <laughs> not Maybe not as emotionally hard-hitting as Lightning Thief or Titan's Curse, but still, like, really exciting, really striking that balance between, like, being a really fun story in its own right while also setting up, like, so much exciting stuff for the finale. Maybe the most consistent book? Yeah, I'd say that. Well, I don't know. I think I think Lightning Thief again is like poss- possibly I'm like misremembering, but I feel like that was cover to cover pretty good. Oh, it was good, but maybe Old Rick's kind of gotten to a stride now, and he's he's pretty much like he's advanced a level. I think. I think that's definitely fair to say. And so I think it's just kind of like they're both consistent books, but I think like the level of quality has gone up. So is that your final verdict on the book? Yeah, I mean, it was really good. I don't know. I It contained one of my favorite chapters of the entire That's series. True. 
probably my favorite chapter in general of the entire series. Um, it's, it's got some of the most interesting villains, some of the most like, I don't know, meaty character conflicts, I guess that, um, and it's, it's got, it's got a big dog. It does have a big dog that, that can't be overlooked. You really can't overlook it. So I would give this an A plus. What do you, what do you think your, uh, ranking of the series is now that we're at the end of book four? My ranking, let's call it... Oh, this is tough. <laughs> yeah, I would say maybe, like... I'm thinking about the last book. And uh-huh. I don't know if it had the same... Like, there there were some dead chapters in there. That's... You know what? That's true. I would maybe... So I would put Battle of the Labyrinth above Titan's Curse, I think. Mm-hmm. I think I would put... I would put, I would put Sea of Monsters at the bottom... And where it belongs, I, I would give the lightning thief number three. Oof, it's not bad. We've read four books, it's not bad. <laughs> I think for me, my ranking goes I think lightning thief's at the top, really, and then Titan's Curse. Because wh- while I appreciate the consistency of Battle of the Labyrinth. I feel like the emotional parts of Titan's Curse hit a lot harder. I can see that. It's it's tough choice there. Mm-hmm. And then, obviously, Battle of the Labyrinth in third. And then much, much further below any of that, Sea of Monsters all the way at the bottom. I feel like we're having opposite problems where, like, I'm... Maybe I'm underestimating Lightning Thief a bit, but I think you're also overestimating Lightning Thief a bit. I, I don't... I can't quite put my finger on what it was that I liked so much about Lightning Thief that maybe has not completely transitioned over into some of the later books. Mm-hmm. Like I feel like the the like the prose and the descriptions of that book just had a kind of they were so vivid and energetic in a way that I don't feel like the rest of the series has really had. Yeah, there there were a lot of points where we just wanted to like bust open the book and like read how an ocean was described or something in lightning thief yeah like one of the the things that springs to mind is like as a point of comparison maybe is Mm -hmm. like the final confrontation with Ares versus the battle of the labyrinth at the end of this book because while i really like the battle of the labyrinth like i can't visualize it in the same way that i can the fight with Ares, where there's that like the blood red ocean from the sunset and like the city burning and the sky turning red while like, you know, Percy duels with this guy with nuclear fire in his eyes. I know. I don't feel like anything else has really hit that level since then. Yeah. I can agree with you in that respect. I'm not sure. I, maybe I am just like not remembering how good the lightning thief was. (laughs) We should do some kind of reread podcast. That'd be a really good idea. Let's call it like... Nectar of the Pods. <sighs> Nectar of the Pods. That's a good idea. <laughs> let's, ca- let's call it the Pod C. Jackson podcast. <laughs> uh, I think that'll probably do it for us today. I think so. We've gone pretty long on this. Yeah. Let's hit our segment real fast. Hell yeah. Jane, which Percy Jackson character is not cishet today? Uh... What the fuck was his name again? Briaries? No, Briaries. Chris? Ethan? Nico? No. Tyson? I'll find it. I'm sorry. Blackjack? Caster. Barely given any screen time and then immediately killed off. Assure and certain <laughs> sign that a character is gay in modern media. <laughs> We're just assigning homophobia at this point. <laughs> We're saying this book isn't homophobic enough. We have to make it more homophobic. <laughs> I want to give it to Poseidon. That's fair. He has like a strong bisexual energy this week. His 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 life, his love is the sea. His he I, he has like a very like I don't know. He's like a bisexual trans dude in my brain right now. Well, I mean, he's the god of sailors. True. So like yeah, I'd say bisexual is definitely a, a reasonable call on that one. Yeah. Let's hit it. Let's People, I know you hate this podcast. (laughs) 
But today is opposite day. So, if you, wink, love this podcast, you can check us out on Twitter at UnwiseGirls, where you can find all of our links to our email, our Discord server, and our Patreon, patreon.com slash UnwiseGirls, where if you support us there for a dollar a month, you get the special Discord role of Camp Counselor. Uh, for $3 a month, you get an even specialer role as Friend of Dionysus and all of our bonus content. We talk about many things, not, not only Homestuck, but sometimes Homestuck, and also every time Homestuck. Almost every time. Occasionally we do miss the Homestuck corner if I'm an idiot and forget to read it. That's true. Uh, for $5, if you're feeling especially generous... You get the specialist role of Aphrodite's Chosen, all of our bonus content, and a shout-out at the end of episodes. Shit. Which Jane forgot to pull up. Uh, speaking of which, uh, this week we'd like to thank Mercy, Veronica Friend, and Erica. Jane, please come up with a funny nickname for me, Faye. Uh, I'm drawing a total blank this week. Come on, you can do this. You can do this. I believe in you. Erica, my favorite child, don't tell the others, Faye. Aw, that's sweet. And also slightly suspect. Uh, Erica, you're our favorite patron, don't tell anyone else. <laughs> uh, I can neither confirm nor deny. <laughs> I think it's time. Uh, hold on, hold on. What's up? Uh, why don't you tell uh good listeners what we're going to be reading next week well next week we're going to be reading the demigod files which is a special like bonus book containing three short stories that we're going to cover in one big episode yeah you thought that we'd jump straight on to the immediately plot relevant book that we're excited for not so we're going to read about fireworks and swords and stuff. I actually haven't checked what's in that book yet. There's fireworks and swords and stuff, from my memory. I know that some of the covers still say, uh, now a major motion picture. Well, that's every book, to be fair. No, no, the, the newer editions that I've got very conspicuously do not mention that it's a, a major motion picture. Oh, I see, I see. Well... For now, as we always say, at the end of every episode, see you next week, Camp Half Blood. See you next week, Camp Half Blood. Bye bye. Bye.